Well, good morning. I just want to congratulate you this morning. Yep, you looked the enemy in the eye and you won. Time change, and you were here on time. Man, all right. Well, I want you to imagine with me for just a moment. Okay, let's, let's imagine together for just a moment. There's a boy, a young boy. And like most boys, he has his share of mischief. But the way that his parents handle him is unhealthy. A lot of times the punishment is greater than the infraction. And the way that they speak to this child is condescending. It's a harsh tone. They make him feel guilty. They give him whippings. The biggest thing is, though, after the punishment, there's separation. Go to your room. Get away from me. Separate from me. I'm angry. And that's his existence. As he grows up, do you think that this young lad, as he grows into a man, he might have some issues with trust, with insecurity? If he becomes a believer, do you think he might have some difficulty with God as a parent? Receiving love from God, trusting God. Or does, does maybe he think he, he has to perform, he has to do everything right for God to be happy with him. You know, Matt and I, we were down in the jungles of Ecuador and we came across several times there were abandonment issues. There were parents who had abandoned their children. They just left. They just went to another village or they went into, you know, into the foothills. But there were several children who said, you know, at 10 years old, I was left alone. Or maybe we could imagine a young person who suffered abuse, physical, emotional. Or maybe it's a young person who wasn't disciplined properly in a healthy way. Maybe they were just neglected. Maybe they were actually never punished. But I think that we can relate to some of this, that as we grow up, as we become adults, that sometimes there's challenges when it comes to relating to God in that relationship that we, uh, that we trust Him fully, that we feel fully forgiven, that we don't have to perform to make Him happy, that we are fully forgiven and we are accepted, and He delights in us, even when we struggle. You know, as believers, we relish and we appreciate being forgiven and reconciled to God. But have you ever found it difficult to walk in God's grace in the midst of a hardship or in the midst of your own sin? When God makes you His child, when He saves you, there's nothing that will cause Him to separate His love from you. Well, today we're going to take a short break from Matthew, as you heard earlier, and we're going to be in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. What a glorious chapter. We're going to be in verses 31 through 39. And generally, uh, this paragraph is broken into to two different sections. Uh, 31 through 34 is like a judicial theme, like a courtroom. You hear phrases that sound like that. And then 35 through 39, 
It's, it's more relational, but both of them are rooted in God's love for us. Uh, looking at where we're going this morning, uh, I have a few, kind of an outline of four points. In verses 31 through 34, Paul asks five challenging questions. And then in verse 35, he lists seven afflictions and says, Who will separate us from, from Christ's love? In verses 36 and 37, even in our sufferings, we are victorious. And number four, Paul lists ten more all-encompassing things that will not separate us from God's love in Christ. And that's verses 38 and 39. Verses 38 and 39 is sometimes called some of the greatest writing in all of Greek literature. It's beautiful. And I'm honored to just get to teach it this morning. So... If you have ever struggled, and I'm talking to the believers in here, if you've, if you've ever struggled just in the tension of the joy of being forgiven, fully forgiven, in Christ, and then there's possibly some guilt and shame that, that comes with ongoing sin, well, this text is for you this morning. So would you turn with me to the book of Romans, Chapter 8, verses 31 through 39, and I'm going to pray. I'll give you a chance to find it, and then I'll pray. Father in heaven, we, we come to you this morning expectant. We know your word is true. We know that you're a good, good father. And we need you this morning. We need to hear from you. Lord, we thank you for these promises. We thank you for these truths that you've given us in your word, that we are fully forgiven, that there is no condemnation for those in Christ, and that you will never withdraw from us. What a wonderful thing that you, the all-powerful God, that you are for us. You're on our side. I pray that you would help me this morning to convey your truths, and that, Lord, you would bind anything that I shouldn't say and that you would help me and help all of us open our hearts to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I feel like I need to make a qualifying statement before we get started. Uh, so there's, there's, when you talk about your relationship to God, there's really two different things you talk about. Uh, the assurance of salvation and then the security of the believer. And so the assurance of salvation basically is if someone is truly converted, if someone has trusted in God. And who knows the heart of a man except the spirit within that man and God. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. So you have the security of the believer. And that's not questioning if someone is saved, but it's more how they walk as a believer. And so, and, and for sure, uh, you can never lose your salvation. You know, last week, John shared a beautiful gospel in his message, and he conveyed how we don't rely on our own righteousness. We don't become legalistic or licentious or cheap in grace, but that our response should be that we're devoted to God. We are honoring him with our obedience, and we should learn more about him and get to know him and grow closer to him. And that'll give us credibility to share with others. 
when my mom watches this, she's going to get on to me for licking my fingers. So sorry, mom. All right. You know, in the, in the letter to the Romans, Paul's constantly dealing with this tension of being free from any condemnation in Christ while also not taking grace for granted when we're tempted to sin. Shall we sin more that grace may abound? May it never be. So let's go ahead and get started here in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? You know, this is a closing paragraph of chapter 8. And it's kind of the crescendo of chapters 5 through 8 where Paul lays out all these things that God has done for us in Christ. Paul begins by summing up the previous chapters by basically saying, in light of all these things that God has done for us, what do we have to say about that? And, and then he asks five rhetorical questions. And they're impossible questions. It's like he's hurling them into the cosmos, just daring anybody to try to stand against God and answer these questions. Let's look at the first question. It says, if God is for us, who is against us? Now, he doesn't ask who's against us, because for sure there would be all kinds of, of answers. There would be like a barrage of uh, the IRS is against us. My boss is against us. The government's against us. My enemies are. I even think my dog is against me sometimes. But that's not what he says. He says, if the all-powerful God of the universe is for us, then who can stand against us? And that's how the question should be. God is for us. My wife might be looking at me a little sideways right now because we just had a big conversation about that a few weeks ago. There was a song the kids were singing and it was all about God is for me, God is for me. And so let me explain. I feel like that phrase has been hijacked a little bit. There's some movements out there, word of faith movement, the prosperity gospel, whatever you want to call it, that they've uh, misused, misapplied this phrase that God is for me. So let's just define that real quick. All right. So what does it not mean? Well, it does not mean that God is for my glory. It does not mean that God is elevating me to a place that I don't belong. It doesn't mean necessarily that God wants me to amass material possessions. You know, I might be wealthy, and that's great. Use that wealth for God. But this doesn't mean that God wants me to be wealthy. When He's for us, it doesn't necessarily mean that He wants me to have a lot of money. It doesn't necessarily mean that He wants me to be healthy. God is for us. That could mean that for me, even if I get a debilitating disease. And so even if you're in here this morning and you're struggling with something, God is for you. God is for you. And he's for his own glory. Is God for joy? Be careful. Yes, he's for joy. But find your joy in him, not in created things. So those are some of the things that it hasn't meant. Here's some things that it does mean. If God is for me, or since God is for me, well, that means, look at all these things just in Roman 8. He's given over his son. He's adopted me. He's given me his spirit. 
He's redeemed and forgiven us. God wants me to grow in the likeness of Christ, but mainly how God is for me is that no matter what situation I'm in, good or bad, that God is going to be right there with me and that he's not going to withdraw his love. So, yes, God is for us. You know, and really this is talking about the battle between the creator of the universe and then uh, physical, the physical realm. And God is an all-powerful God. Nothing can challenge him. And he's on our side. How amazing is that? Verse 32. Well, you may have to ask the question, but is God really for me? I mean, the preacher got up there and said that, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. How do I know that he's for me? I mean, like personally, look at this verse, verse 32. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Romans 5, 8. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You know, what more could God do to prove his love for us? He's proven his benevolence. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. When Abraham took Isaac up on the mountain, laid him on the altar, and I fully believe that he was going to sacrifice his own son. But at the last minute, God provided a substitute. And so we can look at this story of God handing over his son, and there's a parallel there, but that's where it divides, that Isaac didn't die on that altar. Jesus did die for us. Verse 33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now, of course, Satan is going to bring an accusation. He's the accuser, and others may bring accusations, but really what Paul's trying to say here is, who is legitimately going to bring you back into the courtroom after the judge has already declared you innocent? God is the one who's justified you. Verse 34, who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So even if a believer was brought back into the court, who condemns? Who accuses? Who condemns? Nobody. Look at the first verse of this chapter. There is no condemnation. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no condemnation, folks. It's all been paid for, 100%. I feel like sometimes as Christians, if, if I had to visualize it, there's this huge boulder of God's wrath and we can't stand under that, we would be crushed. And so we are converted. We believe, we trust. But then we pick up these 40-pound dumbbells, which represent sin, and we want to carry those around. And that's just enough to make us feel guilty. That's just enough to bring awkwardness when we want to come to God. And the reality is, we have to give all of our sin to God. We can't carry around any of our sin it's been paid for. There's no condemnation. All the condemnation, there, there was condemnation, but it fell on Jesus, all of it. And he paid for that. And so we can now 
boldly say there is no condemnation for those in Christ. Who is the one that will bring the most accusations and condemnation against us? Us. We know our sin. We know our thought life. We can't do that, folks. The guilt and the shame of indwelling sin is paralyzing for a believer. We can't pay for our own sin. And sometimes it's like we want to. We want to be accountable. We want to be responsible. But we're bankrupt. We have nothing. You know, I really enjoy talking with my boys about Romans. And it's amazing to teach Romans and you have a a real live Roman sitting on the couch with you. (laughs) But in all fairness, there's also a dinosaur behind him. So... But we were talking about Romans and just talking about this condemnation thing. And um, none none three of my boys profess to be a Christian yet. But I was talking to them about one day, God willing, when they become men of God. uh, How does that look? Like, how do you deal with that when you've been completely forgiven? And then we talked about a scenario where they were jumping on the trampoline and I was talking to Jonathan specifically. You remember, buddy? You get so angry, you push somebody off the trampoline, and they got hurt. I'm like, how does God deal with that right in that moment? You've been forgiven. You just committed a harsh sin against someone. Is God pleased with you? I think it's okay to say he's not pleased with your sin. Um, there was a splinter up here. Ouch. See? <laughs> um, here's the way John ex- Jonathan explained it. He said, in that moment, God is going to be angry over that sin. But he's going to take that anger and he's going to put it on Jesus. And he's not going to put that anger on me, that wrath on me, because I've been forgiven and Christ is the one who took all that anger. And I was like, wow, that's pretty good for a nine-year-old. But there may be discipline, there may be consequences, and that's okay. That's a good thing. There's a difference between punitive measures and discipline. Discipline is a good thing that you sit and you talk, and it's a guiding instrument. Punitive is just punishment. Let me punish you. And then anger is just a whole other thing. You know, I think I learned something over the past month meeting with some of the men in this church. For me, I feel like when I, when I address my own sin, I want to get rid of it really badly. I want to get rid of it. But why? Is it so that I can honor God with my obedience? Or, I'm going to put this pen down. Or, is it that... Um, I just want to be done with sin so I don't have to daily depend on God, that I don't have to stand before him and confess my sin. Because we know that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But in my pride, it's just, it's an awkward feeling. I don't want to deal with that. And so I appreciate God bringing that to me and helping me understand that. So, so if, 
who, who will separate us? So if I'm not able to separate from God, if I'm not able to separate his love from me with my sinfulness and with my guilt, then who is or what is? Look at verse 35. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? So these are seven afflictions. These are seven considerations. These are seven things that people might think would separate you from the love of Christ. And these are not just arbitrary afflictions, but these, well, all except for the last one, these are personal afflictions that Paul has suffered. And we know that church tradition says that he would die by the sword. He was beheaded. I think about who's receiving this letter right now. This letter is to the church in Rome. Who's the emperor? Nero. Some of the people receiving these words may very well have been thrown to the lions. They may have been people that we, we read about who Nero would impale them. He would dip them in oil and, and he would set them on fire to light his garden parties. These people were in tribulation, in distress. They were dealing with persecution, severe persecution. You know, when I share these things, I don't share these things lightly that no suffering is going to separate us because I know very well that there's people right now listening who are suffering greatly or they have a family member who's suffering or they've had a death in the family. None of that will separate God's love from you. I promise. He says it right here. Let's look at verse 36. Just as it is written, for your sake, we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. This reference is from Psalm 44, 22, and it may seem a little bit out of place, but Paul's simply making the point that followers of God, you'll look at that, for your sake, we are being put to death. Followers of God has, have always suffered. They've always been persecuted. In verse 37. Verse 37. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Well, now he's relating back to verse 35. The language would actually translate to we overconquer, we exceedingly conquer. We not only endure, but we overcome. And in suffering, we actually identify with Christ. Look at verse 17 in the same chapter. Verse 17 says, And if children, heirs also, heirs to God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. So in our sufferings, we identify with Christ. So there's no way that that's going to be something that separates us. In a little bit, when I finish, in just a few hours, um, no, in just a few minutes, actually, we're going to sing a song, Victory in Jesus. My old Baptist pre uh, preacher would be so proud. Oh, victory in Jesus, my Savior forever. He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood. 
May we sing these promises afresh. In the last two verses of this chapter. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, Paul uses stronger personal language here. I am convinced. And when I share about these things, this isn't necessarily a theological fact. You see these things that he says, and you have different commentators give you their impression of what he's talking about exactly. So, um, death, neither death nor life. Well, many people fear death, especially these people he's writing to. A lot of them died by the sword. A lot of them were persecuted. But, I mean, today that's one of the biggest fears that people have is death. And so what he's saying is death is not going to separate you. And then he draws the contrast. Neither death nor life, either side of death, I've got you, and I'm not going to leave you. Nor angels, nor principalities. Well, it, it would be great if the word he used for angels meant evil angels, but it's not. It's actually good or it's arbitrary. So what the thought is here that either one, good angels, bad angels, principalities, powers, anything in the spiritual realm is not able to separate you from the love of God. Things present, nor things to come. He's talking about time. Time is not going to separate you, including eternity. Nor powers. Well, everything is in pairs except for this. And a lot of people put this up with angels or principalities, but powers, he could be talking about any authority, whether spiritual or earthly. Height nor depth. You're not going to be separated by the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, nor heaven, nor hell, nor time and space, things present, things to come, height nor depth. He, he's basically covering all of his bases, but just in case he left anything out, the last one says, nor any other created thing. We were driving in the car, and again, I asked my, my boys, and I say my boys because Ruthie's not old enough to answer yet. But she will. She will. Um, but I was asking him about this, you know, like any other created things. So what else is there that could separate us? I mean, that's any created thing is not going to separate us. That's, that's a pretty vast inventory. And then Josiah says, well, God's not created. Hmm. God did not include himself in that list. But he's the one who's justified you. He's the one who saved you. He's the one who's holding you. And he's not going to separate his love from you. Neither any created thing. You know, Matt and I, I've talked about this lady a little bit. Matt, when I say Matt, Matt Millerborg, my buddy. We were in the jungle and we met this lady. Her name is Gummy, and she's a grandma. And as we talked to her, uh, she shared that she had become a believer many years ago, was baptized, but now she's so embarrassed and so ashamed of her sin that she doesn't even have a relationship with God, that she can't face God. And I'll admit, when I heard that, I was like, wow, that's a humble lady. 
But you know, I've had a couple of months to process that. And although she was uh, convicted and contrite and humble, she also doesn't know the nature of God. That she feels like because I've been sinful that he separated himself, that he's ashamed of me, that he doesn't want to talk to me. You know, maybe he loves me, but he doesn't like me. You know, C.S. Lewis has a quote that true humility isn't thinking less of ourself, but it's thinking of ourself less. I want to take a, a few minutes here. Uh, we're starting to come to the end, but I want to talk to the people who might be in here this morning who have not trusted Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Because in this sermon, this has been for believers, so you've kind of been on the outside looking in. But I want you to know right now, for those who don't know Christ, I've been praying for you constantly for the last 24 hours that nobody would walk out of here this morning still under that condemnation, still liable for their sins. And I'm not going to tell you that you can say some little prayer and accept Jesus into your heart. It's not a magical prayer, but what I will tell you is that there's a God in heaven who created you and he wrapped his son in flesh and he sent him to earth to live a perfect life. And then he was betrayed and rejected and he was put on a cross and he took all the condemnation, all the punishment for you, for us. And then he died. Three days later, he rose again victorious, defeating sin, Satan, and death. And then he ascended to the right hand of the Father, where right now he intercedes for the believers. That's for you. Please don't sit there and hear it and not respond to it. Don't get up and leave this room still liable for your sin. You cannot stand up underneath God's wrath. Who is God saving you from? Himself. From His wrath. You have offended a holy and righteous God. And there's only one solution. That you trust the person and the work of Jesus Christ and that you repent of your sins. Well, we're going to do something a little different in my closing this morning. I'm going to have uh, an assistant come up here and help me. His name is Judah Melvin Hull. Judah, can you come up here, buddy? Now, Judah's biggest challenge this morning was obeying during church, but he did a good job. Let's come over here to this other side. All right, so I want to give you an illustration, basically, of what this text would look like in a demonstration. All right? So... A lot of times we think, well, here's God, and I have to, here, I'll stand down here, buddy. You go ahead. And I have to grab onto God, and I have to hold on to him. You can go ahead. And I have to hold on with all my might. And, you know, how's that, how's that Bible study going there? Oh, you know, try again. I'm the God of second chances, right? Now, you better hold on tight, but how's that prayer life, huh? How's that? Oh, no. Well, you better hold on tight. Hold on to me. Don't be a failure. Perform. 
Do it right. Hold on. Oh, I see you slipping. Failure. That's wrong. That's wrong, folks. Here's what it really looks like. You have the believer. I'll play the part of God. It's my demonstration, so. And he reaches down and he picks him up. And you might hear him say, oh, but God, I'm weak. Well, you were never meant to be the strong one. And in your weakness, you're strong. But God, I feel worthless. Well, my son thought you were worth it when he hung on that cross for you. But I'm ashamed of my sin. Jesus took all of your shame and he took all of your condemnation. There is now no condemnation for you. But God, I think I might slip. I might lose you. Well, that's kind of funny. Because if you'll notice, you're not holding on to me. I'm holding on to you. And let me tell you, son, there's nothing. Neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing that will separate you from me. I love you. I've adopted you. I've forgiven you. I've made you a son and a son you will forever be. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning and we thank you. We thank you that, uh, that you've given us a hope, a hope in Christ. We thank you that you've adopted us, you regenerated us, you've reconciled us, and that you will never let us go. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. You're good. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.